Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the uh, January 24, 2024 Quality Committee of the Board of Trustees. This is our first meeting of the year. Let's start off with a roll call, please. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Garrett. Here. Trustee Sainz. Here. We have a quorum. Thank you. Um, we always open up with the purpose of the QPSC uh, per, our, per, our, per our own bylaws. The QPSC is established to provide oversight and leadership for medical staff credentialing, review of organizational policies, and monitoring of organizational quality assurance, performance improvement, and safety programs. The QPSC is charged with continuing the practice of direct communication with medical staff leaders on issues of clinical operations and patient care. That's our purpose. That's kind of why we're here. Uh, next uh, on the agenda item is uh, this is where we make space for public comment. Madam Clerk? No one has reached out to me. All right. So with that, we'll jump right into the agenda, get back on time. Uh, item A is always kind of the QPSC chair report here. We embed an article, and I, I'll make a few introductory comments. Um, uh, so uh, first, I'd like us all to make a big welcome uh, to Mr. Greg Garrett. We're honored and very appreciative to have Trustee Garrett uh, on this quality committee. For those who haven't had the honor of meeting him, Trustee Garrett is the chief operating officer at Native American Health Center, which is a federally qualified health center. He has oversight over 16 sites, so he's a busy gentleman. Uh, we look forward to Trustee Garrett sharing his wisdom uh, on this committee and others uh, of, of the trustees. Uh, the second, uh, I was wondering whether to do this, but I'm gonna do it anyways. I'm gonna do a reflection here. I mean, I think uh, the first meeting of the year is as good as any to, to reflect on our prior year. Uh, so I just uh, was thinking about these comments earlier today. So, um, I'll note that last year we had some quality successes. Uh, we passed our triennial joint commission accreditation for Highland and San Leandro. Our harm scores continued its five-year improving trend. Alameda Hospital scored a CMS four-star rating. We hit 100% on our QIP program, which would equate to almost $60 million in incentives. And our insurer, Bader Hart, gave us some of their own homegrown awards. So we must be great, right, when our insurer gives us awards. Um, last year, we also had some not great successes, or the opposite of not quality success. Our, our LeapFrog scores at Highland and Alameda seem to have stagnated at a score of C. CMS gave Highland and San Leandro a one-star rating. Only 250 hospitals out of the 4,600 hospital surveys received a one star. And we achieved target on zero out of 11 of the True North metrics, which we chose ourselves to, for, for that year. So these were, these were things that we picked ourselves. I'll, I'll note, in my view, any success is better than no success. And I do believe that on balance, the quality needle did move forward for us. My question to the trustees, to the org, to our public is, who is satisfied with the rate at which we are moving? Uh, I, I, I can't speak for others, but I'll say for myself, I am not, I am not satisfied, and I'm, I'm happy to have debate with anyone who, who claims that, that, that they are. This year, it is my hope that this quality committee uh, becomes one amongst many places here at Alameda Health System where we energize and inspire and support meaningful uh, quality improvement. And I, I, I do feel that part of this means some culture change for us. 
Let's create an environment where we feel safe to express dissatisfaction with anything less than excellent. Let's create an environment where we feel safe to express, where we stop patting ourselves on the back for anything else which is less than excellent. Let's get a little more obsessive about quality here. And if necessary, let's break things if we have to, to move quality. So with that, um, uh, I'll introduce the article we have here um, uh, and, and open up for any comments to the trustees. Uh, actually, I'll open up for any comment to the trustees on, on my little diatribe that I just went through. Mm -hmm. Sirs? Well, we won't argue that you should or shouldn't be satisfied. You get to have your level of satisfaction. Thank you, sir. <laughs> uh, um, I do think that we've made some progress, and I think that uh, we face uh, some unique challenges here, and we're working really hard to meet them. And I think that um, from my, you know, eight or nine months of, of exposure here, uh, I think the probably the largest challenge is to get everyone rowing in the same direction. And I know our leaders work on that every day. And I'm hoping that uh, in my role uh, as a board president now, I can encourage more of that. If we all get our uh, direction together, it moves faster. Like yes, sir. Boat, right? So I think that that's really the secret. And we have to, this group has to really take a lead on that from a quality perspective. Yes, yes sir. Thank you. Trustee Garrett, any comments, sir? Just one brief comment, which first I want to thank um, the president, board president, uh, for appointing me to this committee. Um, it's something I'm very involved in and, and interested in in my own professional career. So I'm very happy to be on this committee. Hearing uh, what Dr. Bouquet said, um, Trustee Bouquet, uh, obviously there's some concerns, but the team here, having met them through orientation, I'm very confident that the team here is, is up to the challenge, and I'm looking forward to working with everyone to to road together. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. With that, we'll go, uh, I'll introduce the article uh, uh, for, 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 for the public and for our trustees. As a reminder, we try to consider ourselves a learning environment here. So uh, I'll often select an article which is pertinent to points of discussion or learning. So the article for this evening is entitled, Emergency Department Volume Numbers Don't Tell the Whole Story, The Rising Toll of Boarding and High Acuity of Care. And I will note this directly relates to the, the marquee presentation tonight, which is agenda item E. So I'll open up this up to my to my colleagues or anyone for uh, points of discussion on this article. I'll also include our ED department chair who faithfully comes if she has any comments. Not putting on the spot, but putting on the spot, Dr. Wills. Um, you know, so so I am familiar with this article. Um, I read it, I think, um, several weeks ago. Uh, the notion of ED boarding and ED census numbers um, actually was given to me by a colleague. We were talking about this yesterday. This concept dates back 60 years, um, where as emergency care becomes more available, people become more mobile, uh, the census goes up and up and up. And really, since the 50s, we've seen this trend. And um, you know, COVID, there was a resetting where people stopped coming out of fear of getting sick and being told to send um, to stay home. And it's taken facilities a, a, a time to rebound from that. But in the meantime, like our capacity really hasn't increased. And so post COVID, what we're really seeing here is that more people are coming, but they are sicker from the delays of care. And really this is couched as easy boarding, but it's simply not. It's, it's 
the whole health system. And so, I mean, those of you, I think I've told many of you in the room sort of my analogy to plumbing, um, not to be crude here, but you know, with what we're doing and how we approach this, there are certain things like you can put a new bath mat down in the bathroom, you can change the toilet seat, but if the toilet is clogged and not flushing, it's going to continue to overflow. And we see that um, happening in our own department, um, across departments across the system time and time again, it's most acute here at the Highland campus. Um, and it really has to do with overall system throughput. Got it. So, um, you know, the acuity of patients is not going down, the complexity is not going down, but the way in which we approach um, brick and mortar emergency care really hasn't evolved um, to keep up with this. And so, um, you know, the, anal the other analogy we use is that uh, with airway management, if you don't intubate successfully on the first try, you have to change something about what you're doing. You have to change your equipment, change your position of the patient. Um, but the way in which we keep approaching this, not just here locally, but at a national level, it is really, um, it is the same. We're using old methodology that dates back again 60 years. We are not changing anything in which we're doing this. And the consequence is that patients wait longer um, to be seen. And there's really no um, incentive on the business side of that um, to actually move those patients through. So we'll have, so this, this have the, the clash between the business of medicine and then the actual delivery of healthcare. So thank you for those comments. This will be kind of point of discussion. I just extracted, extracted a few bullet points for myself here. Some basic stats from the article. At the University of Alabama at Birmingham, there was a 78% increase in boarding hours between 2018 and 2022. At Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, the typical number of orders of five to 10 has ballooned to 30 to 50. Uh, not only volumes, but complexity has increased. And then two quotes. One, first quote, there is incontrovertible evidence that ED crowding leads to significant patient harm. And then the last quote that I'll close out with, quote, hospitals haven't moved faster because of counterbalancing financial incentives, citing misaligned healthcare economics that pressure hospitals to maintain inefficient high inpatient census levels. Whether that fully applies to us, I think can be a question, but I think this article helps to frame what will be uh, an important discussion uh, this evening uh, uh, for, for our organization. Any further comments from anyone? Yeah, let me just yes, add Madam one more thing. One of the, the, this article touched on one of the um, issues that I've long struggled with, which is that it is not a publicly reported Right. You know, so there's, while the Joint Commission has standards around not exceeding boarding time beyond four hours, the systems don't publicly report that. We don't have a standard set, that way of, of measuring it. And so how do we compare against the rest of, of you know, all of healthcare across the nation? I think that if it was a publicly reported metric, let's say it was put into to the CMS star rating or leapfrog, that there might be additional drivers. To change. I agree. Trustee Wills, quickly. Uh. So I would add to that. So the American College of Emergency Physicians is actually uh, taking this issue to the AHRQ. So it is making its way, um, uh, making uh, headway with these federal agencies, and so rec being recognized as a as really like a safety issue, a quality yeah. issue for sure, but also a patient safety issues you stated. So um, you know, I think we hold out hope that it gets in front of AHRQ and we'll get some headway in that regard. Great. Thanks for the feedback. Well, with that, we'll close out item. Uh, a, and we'll move to item B, the consent agenda. 10 minutes have been allocated for this agenda item. Uh, trustees, there's items B1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 there for your review. Um, uh, are any items necessary to pull for discussion from your perspectives? 
Given that, may I entertain a motion to approve the consent agenda in its entirety? Second. Madam Clerk. Excellent. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Garrett. Aye. Trustee Sain. Aye. Motion passes. Excellent. That's where we want some time back. All right. Uh, so item C is our medical staff reports. Uh, as everyone knows, this is this is sort of in our charter to directly engage our physician leaders. We uh, should have three physician leaders in the room. Uh, Dr. Lana Lee, who is an obstetrician gynecologist. She's the chief of the AHS medical staff. We have Dr. Abid Maganam. He is a vascular surgeon and he is the chair of the San Leandro Hospital Leadership Committee. And of course we have Dr. Nikita Joshi, who's an emergency department physician who is uh, the chief of the Alameda Hospital medical staff. So uh, this evening, uh, uh, we're, we're doing a, a little bit of an adaptation, uh, hope, and we're test running this um, versus prior. And I've, I've given uh, some comments to all presenters to pre present executive summaries, which, which will hopefully be a little bit more robust from prior versions. Um, I'm going to ask the, uh, the clerk of the board to put the executive summary up um, for everyone. Um, uh, if you can size that up just a little bit. And I'm gonna do a little bit something different here. And this is hopefully towards efficiency. I'm gonna give everyone about a minute to read this. And then uh, Ron, if you'll give them another minute to read page two. And then, then we can ask you if you said what you needed to say on this executive summary. And I'll, I'll open it up for anything that you might need to complement this executive summary. Ronnie, can you move that? Uh, there's something. Oh, sorry. Up. <laughs> Hopefully, everyone can read this and is reading it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you scroll down just a little bit and just leave operating room at the top there and give people a little bit of room right here. Can you scroll down a little bit more, please, for us? There we go. just a little bit more. There we go. All right, hopefully everyone's had a, a, enough to get a sense of the executive summary. Let's see if this works. So uh, uh, doctors, thank you for uh, making an effort on the executive summary per, per kind of some of the guidelines I have. Um, thank you for presenting in key points. Do you feel like you wrote down what you wanted this group of trustees to know and the organization to know? And then I'll offer you uh, some space and time to, to highlight things that you think need highlighted or to, to addend uh, to whatever. So I'll, I'll leave it to the three of you to take up time. And um, we've allocated 20 minutes to this. So we've probably used about three or four minutes. So 15 more minutes. Want me to stop sharing or keep it up? Um, let's let's uh, stop sharing. Okay. 
Dr. Joshi, good evening. Good evening. Thank you. And uh, thank you for the guidelines for the uh, robust way to present. I, of course, want to emphasize the first point. And of course, there's a reason why it's the first point, because it's so critical, which is the planning for the future of Alameda Hospital. Uh, we've now had a few presentations formally to the board, including finance committee and to the full board. But really, we want to emphasize on behalf of both med staffs that we are most committed and excited about proposals that would maintain acute care beds and preserve the ability to accept transfers and to allow for elective surgery. I really want to highlight that because it is so critical to underscore. And I know that you all on the board know that, but I just have to uh, make sure that it is emphasized. And the other point that I want to emphasize under the second bullet point is that we at the MEC, for both MECs, also want to ensure that we are making significant gains on our True North metrics. We also recognize that there are opportunities to improve, especially in patient experience. We heard a robust presentation by Dr. Lowry, for example, how he himself called about 400 patients who had been discharged from the inpatient at Alameda Hospital and what his experience had been like. That was at the last Alameda Hospital MEC. So just want to emphasize that as you all are committed, we are committed to quality and making gains in where we identify to be areas of opportunity. Thank you, Dr. Joshi. Trustees, any questions for Dr. Joshi? Uh, Dr. Lee, Dr. Maganam, any, any uh, compliments, uh, uh, comments in, 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 in compliment to this, to this uh, executive summary? Good evening, board. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Um, I wanted to uh, maybe clarify and give you some details on our chair search committees. This month, we added two more chair search committees to the Department of Pathology and to Ambulatory Care and Preventive Medicine. Um, I don't need to stress to you that our department chairs play such a critical role in the care delivery of their departments anywhere from you know, uh, details of what tape they use in the ED to what, uh, you know, to, to any HR matters, to the huge expansion of levels of care or specialty care within their department. So we currently now have five um, open chair searches, um, an update to the OMG department. They have put out a job description and our starting interviews and an update to uh, imaging and radiology. I believe they do have a candidate that we're about to meet very soon. Um, and an update to psychiatry is that they are currently doing interviews. So that, otherwise the remaining portions of my report are as they are in the written report. Thank you. Dr. Lee, can you remind the trustees how many departments there are in the system? Um, 14, I believe. Support. It might be 11 or 12. I think it's, I think oh. it's 11. So uh, I, I guess. For eight. Yeah, for, sorry for the. Uh, yeah. So our CMO is making some uh, uh, appropriate comments. Uh, Alameda Health System actually has a slightly different structure than Alameda Hospital in terms of their department structure. But I guess my question is five departments out uh, for chairs. Can you comment on that? Is this 
Doesn't that seem like a lot? Yes, it does. And if you recall, we also had uh, ED and the orthopedic department up there for the end of last year. So that is a lot of turnover. Over do you have an opinion on? Do you have an opinion or position on why that might be? Why a system such as ours might have uh, such uh, uh, vacancies in senior medical leadership? I mean, I think some of it is is retirement, right? Dr. Simon was a valued longtime ED uh, chair. Um, I think I'll, most of it is burnout. Uh, a lot of our, I mean, our chairs have such a huge job. Um, and I think they, they, they just have, uh, they see that they, they just, yeah, they have a really big job. And I, I yeah. Okay. Trustees, any other questions for Dr. Lee? Good evening, Dr. Magano. Good evening, trustees. Thank you for the floor. Uh, I have nothing further to add to the executive summary, but I'm happy to take any questions uh, that you may have for me or regarding San Leandro Hospital. Are there areas of concern which were not that you have yourself, which are not included in this report? This is your opportunity to tell us what you think we need to know. I don't have any areas of concern at this point in time. We will have our first meeting next month, so I'll have more to report on at that point in time. Got it. Trustees, do you have any questions of Dr. McGonham or concern? I actually have a general question. Yes, sir. It could be taken by anyone. So uh, way back in 1978, I began my federal career as a professional standards review organization program specialist. Wow. A program that was created because the utilization review wasn't working very well in the cost reimbursement uh, world of Medicare in 1978 and, and prior to that. Um, and I'm just curious in, in, you know, some of the things I worked on were standing up the quality review organizations that CMS has, you know, other insurers are so vicious about reviewing that everything that they pay for is necessary. So I'm kind of curious, what does you, what, what is the benefit of having utilization review in hospitals today when all the payers are reviewing their patients every day? I mean, I can tell you on a personal level, when I've interacted with utilization management, um, they've given us some direction on uh, orders and whether we place a patient in op status or inpatient. And that, you know, really matters when it comes to revenue or to, um, and, and, you know, the clinical care is the same, but there's a lot of, details, I think, that we don't get taught as physicians in medical school or in residency. And I think understanding the role, the rules around Medicare and Medicaid, um, it, it's not something that we have a lot of time to, to work on while we're also providing patient care. And it's a, it's a requirement, uh, requirement under CMS. Um, Dr. Wu, good evening. Good evening. Yeah, I think a key point is our utilization management team is going to be really aligned with our needs as an organization. 
Whereas the insurance reviewers are going to be financially incentivized to think about their own needs. And so it's really important here that we have a strong utilization management team to have patients in our care for our patients while they're with us. And, you know, as a result, kind of educating everyone that's involved in that patient's care, physicians included, and because all of the documentation is going to need to support the medical need for why that patient's here. Thank you, Dr. Dr. Joshi. I would also add that our patients are uh, specific compared to those, you know, such as other systems in the area locally. Um, what, whereas in an emergency department, you know, I may want to try to admit somebody because they don't have access to care where, it, you know, normally oral antibiotics could have sufficed or they could have taken care of their wounds at home. Maybe there are social determinants that are preventing that. So there are particularities within our patient population that make it um, more challenging and where we need to be more creative in how we approach them. We're having our utilization management team understand our patients and help us to work with what we have is very important to us so that we are reimbursed for the work that we do, but most importantly, that we're able to take care of the patients for how they need to be taken care of. Thank you, Dr. Joshi. Sir, Mr. Prasky. Not all payers review daily. Medicare doesn't, Medi-Cal doesn't. So UM, um, we really look to them to understand how we document, understand what our case mix index is, understand the implications with our length of stay, understand administrative days, understand all of these things that are kind of fallout variables from trying to manage the patients under their care. Thank you, Mr. President. Are there any other hands up, Madam? We're at five minutes. We're at five no minutes. more hands. Okay. Um, okay, last chance to the docs. Thank you. Did you feel like you told us everything you needed to tell us to help move quality here? Okay. Thank you. With that, we'll close out item C uh, and we'll move into item D. This is quality reports. Uh, we, we hear from two of our uh, quality leaders here. First is uh, Ms. Anna Torres, who's our uh, VP Quality, and then uh, Mr. Richard Espinoza, who's our CAO of uh, Post-Acute in Item D2. So we'll do Item D1. We're going to try to follow this theme. Ms. Torres wrote out a very nice um, executive summary. So let's spend a minute reading the work that she put into this, and then let's see if that can frame our discussion, and let's see if this works. So let's just take a minute to read together. Madam Clerk, can you just do a slight scroll down? Yes, ma'am, to give us three, four, and five. Perfect. Sir. Good. Yeah. One correction that I need to Yes, ma'am. So good evening, Ms. Torres. <laughs> the report is yours. Is there anything here that you didn't write out so nicely for us that you might want to highlight or addend? Uh, the floor is yours. 
Sure. I just I want to um, mention under key point four, um, we said there was an increase in regulatory activity, a 24% increase. That's actually incorrect. Um, so when we looked at the data, we had a in here in the data when we looked at it, there is no increase. Um, so I want there to is correct. no increase. No increase. Okay. So, well, we okay. So that's big. That's where I was going to go. <laughs> I was going to say, is the sample size small? So. Okay. It is a small sample size. So we increased by two, which isn't really um, a big deal. But yeah, I would like to say that I, I do think if we can go up to key point one. So we started off the meeting by talking about how quality has moved. Yes, ma'am. Um, under the first bullet point, I think it shows that we're, we are moving the numbers. We are moving the numbers. We are moving. Yes. We're going in the right direction. There's still a lot of work to be done, but I think this is work that does take time. One of the things that, that we're doing is as we're starting to change, we want to make sure that we're building in systems that are going to be sustainable. Um, we have our MORs every month, and I know I've talked about the MORs before, but that's one area where we're seeing. Um, Can you remind the trustees what MOR means? Monthly operating uh, review Report. meetings. Yeah. MOR. So at that meeting, we're looking at all the quality data every month. Each hospital has their own report. Um, looking at the data in detail, but also asking the key question why isn't the data moving? Um, the meetings are led by the CAO, the COO, and the CNO. Um, and what's great about those meetings, in my opinion, is that quality is presenting the data, but quality is not asking the questions because in many in, in many areas, quality work is quality's responsibility. And here we've changed that model. So nursing and clinical care is moving the data. We're providing all the support they need to help move that data. So part of what was done last year is that we, we did create a triad um, for each of the metrics that has responsibilities as a physician, a nurse, and a quality uh, performance improvement person. And in some of these areas, we're creating co-design teams. So we're designing the practice with the frontline staff, and then the accountability is, is at the MOR meeting. And then we have Dr. Wills, who chairs the quality committee, um, and she does a great job of giving a summary to the MEC on the metrics and on the pieces where the medical staff is involved. So I think um, while it, it looks like we're moving pretty slowly, I think there's a lot of good work happening right now. Um, it's actually pretty exciting. Yes, ma'am. Um, we also have, you talked about the culture event. We have our culture of safety coming up pretty soon. Um, that's going to open up. And last year was the first year that we saw, I, actually, I think we were the only organization in beta that moved all 15 um, areas, all 15 domains in the positive direction. We still have a long way to go. So um, I'm not trying to say that we've gotten there, but we're headed in the right direction. Um, and part of that is, is um, I think, the board, right? Because what's important to leadership is important to everyone else. Um, so I think we're headed in the right direction. I don't think any other questions. Trustees, any questions of our VP quality? Yes, sir. To the chair. Yeah. Um, your December patient harm rate was 4.2%. I'm wondering, is that a, um, a seasonal number that you expect? Or, or is that, was that a, clearly, you know, it was outside of your, your goal range. So is that seasonal? We, we do see it go up from time to time. I will tell you that in December, it's 4.2 because we've had 20 harms. 19 of those were temporary harms. 
And when we drill down further into those 19, three quarters of them were skin uh, pressure ulcers and falls, which are also included under number one, the two north metrics. And we actually have teams working on those. So we're expecting to see that go down, but we do see it fluctuate sometimes from month to month. I'm curious about, and I, I recall that we've heard about this before, but I'm not remembering. What exactly are the, or what kinds of access issues around ambulatory care do we have that people just can't get in? Pretty much. Access, yeah. It's difficulty in making appointments. It's a capacity calls issue. Returns. Is it a capacity issue or a performance issue? It's a, the, a lot of it is a capacity a uh, issue, and there's, it, it's on our actually reporting calendar here to come back and give a presentation at QPSC here on all of the work underway. Um, and and in ambulatory to address access, and some of some of it really is just adding uh, physicians who can see more patients. Um, there has been an enormous increase in some of our specialty physicians, and then we're also seeing um, that in primary care as well, where we're adding additional capacity. Well, interestingly, just sort of on the street, I hear this about other local providers too. Yeah. Get in. Delays getting in. And, um, you know, I mean, I had a friend over last night that developed a, like, a sty in her eye and infection. And she's a dental hygienist, so she could work with the side thing. And she belongs to one of the private plans here. And it was like they were, they were for two weeks or whatever. So she went to Carbon Health and paid $200 out of pocket, got the exam, got the antibiotic. You know, two days later, she's back to work. That's what people expect because they expect everything to be like Amazon. But, you know, facing the... The curve of people that are retiring and not enough people coming into healthcare. It's so that's a real tough one. So what's your provider vacancy rate now? Is it above average? Um and in fact actually and you might have heard that from Dr. Jones morning the other day, the actually turnover rate in that interim medical group, Alameda Health Medical Group, went significantly down and there was enormous growth in the number of FTEs yep, that. That, that that were filled. So Overall, if you look at the vacancy rate, it's actually for physicians, it's lower. We've actually been going through the process of approving additional FTEs just to meet the demand um, in terms of capacity, most recently in um, primary care and internal medicine. Um, but our approval and Dr. Subramanian came to the budget oversight committee and got additional FTEs. So we're actually at the point of adding FTEs just to meet the capacity. And I do want to compliment you on being able to retain staff at your low low turnover rates. It's amazing. Um, so of, of the 11 metrics, the two that met the goal were actually related to access. Right. They were a primary care return. We don't have news as one of our dashboard items and specialty return. So, uh, you know, uh, so happy to see flashes of green where there was none before. So, uh, Madam VP quality, I agree with you. I think we're moving in the right direction. And then, our, our larger question kind of relates to the top of the meeting. Are we moving fast enough? What what do you need to turbocharge this? Mm -hmm. yeah. well, I think it's never fast enough. Yeah. Um, but I think right now we have the support we need. We have three new um, performance improvement people as of three months ago. Okay. And they've just hit the ground running. So okay. they're out there. Um, I saw them emailing Will today saying we need frontline staff at our meetings. And yeah. Will said, you got it. Yeah. So, that's the kind of support we need, and I, I think we're getting it. Again, it's never going to be fast enough, um, but we sort of have to balance with 
being fast with putting in a system that's actually going to work when the PIT steps away. Yeah. So it's a little bit of both. Got it. So here's our question. So uh, we're, we just hit the top of Q3. Actually, we're into Q3 right now. So our data set is going to close on June 30th. What is your prediction for, uh, and I know I'm putting you on the spot, but I don't know. How are we going to do on our true north metrics? I, I'm hoping it won't be zero again. I, I think we'll hit, well, I, I'm hoping we're going to, I don't know. I'm putting, on, I'm putting on the spot. I told you I was going to, I going to be harder this year. We're, we're going to, I think we'll hit a few of them. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think we'll be able to hit a few of them. The challenge of the quality work is it's so, there's such lag, right? And then right-sizing after you get the lag data. So, so yes, ma'am, that's one more. And if I can add, of course. one of our principles that we really thought through in the goal setting as well was that we wanted to be aspirational. We yeah. wanted it to be hard. Yeah. So we didn't set goals that we knew we would achieve. Yeah. And so that's a part of what's behind us is that we're driving towards the aspiration, towards aspirational goals to really move the needle. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Ms. Torres, on uh, key point three, the patient grievances have increased. As you know, this was a, a presentation subject for us, and uh, we were sort of expressing concern for for your patient relations team uh, with regard to resources. I, I can't remember the numbers, but it was something like 125% uh, increase in patient grievances. Are you feeling resourced in that in that arm of your your part of your org structure to ad address these grievances? Yeah, so we've actually talked about that. We're going to be getting some health cap interns, which okay. we've done in the past for the summer, and we, we will just be keeping them longer, who can help us do some of the work. In addition, a lot of these grievances were related to access issues with ambulatory care is working on. Okay. So we think we're okay. So you're, you're, you're saying you, you think you're set? That's either we just want to hear. We think we're set. Okay. Because yeah. remember, this is the place where you get to ask for stuff. Mm. Okay. We'll ask. Okay, good. <laughs> Sir? One more thing I'll mention. Of course, no, no. We did have joint commission here today. Yes, ma'am. I just wanted to mention, we don't have detail yet. Um, they left around 4 o'clock. Um, I just wanted to mention that next month we'll, we'll have some more Yes, ma'am. Sir? If I may, please. Uh, Always. With regard to access to care, vacancy of providers isn't your predominant issue. What is your largest barrier? Um, to to achieving higher rates of access. Um, and when you say access to care is not our issue, you mean? Uh, no, you said provider vacancies was your issue. Yeah, oh, sorry. Right. Yeah. You said that no, we're staffing up. It's, so it's not vacancies. It may be that you need more providers. What you're recruiting. What other issues? Other, maybe I could ask this way. What other issues other than providers um, are a barrier to um, improving access? So one of the things we're, we're looking at um, is around uh, space, is, is around how do we optimize space so that we can fill in our physicians and advanced practice providers in a more efficient way. Another way, of course, is telehealth, um, is to go outside of the walls of, of um, the, the clinic in terms of um, accessing care, looking at different hours of the day. I know our, our there was, work um, led by our ambulatory leadership to look at nights and weekends mm -hmm. as we're bringing in additional primary care physicians we are slotting them into nights and weekends so it's a 
that also helps with, of course, um, uh, patient experience of care too, because they can come, you know, after work. Um, and uh, that we're looking at um, team-based care, meaning optimizing everyone to the top of their licenses. How are we supporting everyone, you know, the entire care team, um, community health workers uh, in addition. So there's many projects underway to, to look at access. We were talking even just today, um, which I do consider an access issue around um, utilization of my part. Mm -hmm. You know, because uh, we should be, um, Dr. Rahman calls it our digital front door, yep. you know, to really optimize that as well. Do you know what percentage of your patients utilize my chart on a regular basis? Oh gosh, we were looking at that today. Are we at, it was at uh, 14? Yeah. 14. 13. Yeah, 14%. Yeah, very low. And we want to be up at 80, at least. 80. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's an aspirational I know. Uh, we'll we'll get there. That's well, if I may, and we were talking to our consultant from Epic about this, and they basically kind of gave us a roadmap. Uh, another similar organization had been in a, you know, a comparable place, and they basically kind of created a czar, if you will, um, with um, enough horsepower in the organization to really drive the change that was necessary, and the end result was them getting you know, into that 80th percentile. And so mm -hmm. um, this is an opportunity for us, and we're excited about it. And it was a, a comparative group of safety net yeah, I'm surprised by that. I'll tell you why. It's not that of the effort and energy put in by staff. It's the technology issues that individuals have. It's the lack of access to broadband and Wi-Fi. Yes. It's the lack of access Literacy. to technology. So it's not no no disrespect to the staff. It's it's difficult from the patient access side, the patient side, and that tends to limit things, at least from the experience we have. Um, may, I, may I ask one more question, please, sir? Um, man, yeah. Okay. Keep it looser. Okay, so so thank you for that. I just very briefly, just space. Is space? Are you talking about space related to the space providers have to do notes and their their workspace, or are you talking about space for exam rooms? What what type of space are you referring to? Well, both, but really yes. patient care space. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, because um, certainly if you have any clinician who's seen patients in the area, you have to have the team yes. together. Yes. But then there's also just the the exam room uh, so both. As, as well, so certainly um, both. And I think there's, I think, going to be an initial focus here at the Wilmington Highland Hospital outpatient campus, and then, of course, we have to look beyond that as well. But we're very, um, uh, we, we elbow each other here. Yeah. You know, it's a little bit tight. Last question, I promise. Telehealth, what are your barriers to telehealth and, and expanding telehealth access? So I think it's, um, I think it's uptake kind of across the, the organization to just make that part of the day-to-day -day work. So that's, so there's a, from what I understand, there's a cultural piece here is to really build it into the, cult, the culture. There's also um, the, because we, we have doximity um, now and to, are there, do we need to have full telehealth templates? Do we need to build in te telehealth visits into the, whether it's a specialty visit or if it's a primary care um, visit? So we have the technology I think it's the workflows, I think it's the culture that, that we need to um, address and really make it easier for our clinicians. I don't know, you know, Dr. I don't work in the outpatient space, mine is inpatient, Dr. Duquette um, works in the outpatient space around whether there's some kind of workflow issues that we need to sort out to make it easier on the clinician side. Um, I think on the patient side, my sense is that if we have it available, there will be uptake. I believe that. Do you know what percent of your business now are telehealth? Oh. 
That's a stat I don't know off the top of my head. Single digits? I think the opportunity. Big opportunity. That's a big opportunity. We're running the NFL. What is Native American? 30, 40%. We've had it up to mid 20s during COVID. COVID, we were 95. But I mean, you know, it's a different operation, different thing, but definitely related. That's definitely related, and there's definitely opportunity here. Satisfaction that comes from being able to stay at home, care for your kids, absolutely, et cetera, et cetera, and take a telehealth appointment. So I think it's a so trusting here. Thank you for that. And if we'll put on our tracking item, uh, 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 the cadence that I've worked out with Dr. Tornabene is we have 11 true north metric items. Each one of them is going to get a little bit of a focus during the QPSC. So I think your question directly relates to the our ambulatory presence. So if we can put that in uh, for for our ambulatory leadership about in integrating the telehealth. Thank you. And, and, and yes, sir. I think it's particularly important because our, a lot of our patients don't have the option to pay $200 out of pocket to go to Harvard Health or go to yeah. you know, some other provider. I mean, they're kind of locked in. And that would, that would sort of drive the grievance activity. I think it's frustrating. And, and, and Trustee Garrett, as you already commented on, there, there's, a, there, there's a tech uptick, tech literacy, tech broadband, and um, I'm going to blow my own uh, timing here, by, but I want to tell a, a patient story. So we, we in GI, we're still trying to do a lot of telehealth. So one day I'm talking to uh, a patient on our schedule, uh, and it's, 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 it's a televisit, but it's actually not Zoom. It's actually just a phone call uh, because uh, a, a, a number of our patients have sort of, it's too hard, the tech is too hard on their side. So I'm talking with them, and I'm, I'm hearing this while we're talking. And I'm talking about his condition, and, and I'll give this first name. His name is Jose. And I, I said, Jose, what's that noise? And he said, it's hammering. Mm -hmm. and, and I said, Jose, where are you right now? He said, I'm on a roof doing my job. <laughs> so he was actually he was actually at work, yes. and it allowed him to take his time off. And I said, Jose, I think I need to stop talking. You know, roofers are one of the most dangerous jobs there are. I said, please do not fall off. Please do not fall off the roof. But it just sort of highlighted for me that, 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 that providing access points, however we can, beyond brick and mortar, I think, uh, is a strategy. It's a wonderful story. I could tell others similarly, and but I'd say exactly. Yeah. When we were standing up the volunteer program in Nevada, the, there was a there was a exchange or something there that was funny it went under but one of the things they had in their little show place which was in a bank building that they had bought they had these sort of booth things that were like a kiosk where people could have a more robust kind of televisit that don't have technology at home to have video maybe maybe other people do this i don't know but that's an idea like the way banks have atms yeah you know you could use your phone but you want to go to the bank anyway 
So that will close out item D1. Thank you, Ms. Torres, for that. Hopefully that, that works. I've had some nice robust conversation around Trustees, remember that, uh, uh, the quality team works their butts off to create a, a bunch of reports. Those are in the supplements. There's the two North that metric dashboard for our quality. And then there's actually hospital breakdown. So there's a, a lot of data uh, in there for you to review. So with that, we'll close out item D2 and we'll go to the uh, item D2, sorry, D1. We'll go to item D2, which is the post-acute report from, from uh, the omnipresent uh, Richard Espinoza. I'm gonna open up by saying apologies to Mr. Espinoza because I created a guidelines for presenters and I forgot to send it to him. So he didn't create an executive summary. And I know Mr. Espinoza is so accountable. So I told, I, I, this is on me. I didn't give him the right thing. So Mr. Espinoza, good evening. Well, good evening and uh, no apology necessary. And I'll move this along quickly. So um, in, if we can go to the next slide. Um, so all of our CMS quality ratings are out again for November, December, and January. And all of our sites are five-star rated overall and five-star quality. And I do want to just add some context here. Um, only the top 10% of facilities in the state of California are allowed or deemed five-star overall and quality measures. And so just to add some context of what that means, um, I know we do report a lot of the same data monthly, and I just want to make sure this doesn't go um, unrecognized that this type of work is very difficult to do, although they've been incredibly consistent. Uh, next slide, please. You have been terribly consistent. Uh, so here's Alameda of the three buildings, which is very similar to Highland, San Leandro, and John George. It's three buildings that are on one license um, overall. Five stars, health inspection, five stars, quality measures, five stars, staffing, one star. We need a few more hours from rehab. But uh, for this, um, for Trustee Garrett, who's new, and I had my orientation last week, um, this we're going on our 10th year of being five star overall quality and quality measures for these three buildings um, consistently, which is really unheard of. And so these buildings, um, just like Highland, San Leandro, and John George, if one of them has an issue that blows up, they all fall down, right? They all move their star rating. So the teams have been incredibly consistent. They're very proactive. And we monitor our metrics that CMS monitors, plus many more on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis. So we're not waiting for a monthly report to come out. We know in real time what our data is going to be so that we can make adjustments in real time. Uh, so that when CMS data comes out, which is usually lagging, we already know what it's going to look like. And we, we we even have called CMS sometimes and said, you know, there's an error here. Um, so, But I think that proactive approach um, that the buildings take, and, and I want to be clear, it's not for the star ratings. It's because the star ratings speak to certain metrics that relate to patient care, right? So we're focused on getting that patient care process and policies and procedures down so that when they do feed into CMS, they're, we're hitting it as best we can. So next slide, please. Um, I'll share this is Fairmont, also overall quality rated five stars. Um, they just had their best inspection in my understanding, in the history of Fairmont, they only had three deficiencies. Uh, state average is 16. 
Um, so their health inspection will move to five stars in about 90 days. Um, again, that lag time. Uh, quality measures, five stars, and staffing, five stars. So this team has worked very hard um, to get back to the five stars. Next slide, please. Um, as the, as the uh, executive summary information that I got will change, we'll start giving some more specific data. And this is one that um, one from CMS that we're looking at in terms of flu vaccination. We're greater than the national average, but we're under the California state average. And so some of the work we've been doing has been working with our doctors and our nurses on how do we explain the risks and benefits for getting the flu vaccine? How does that interact with COVID vaccines? right? Because um, it's not just it's time for a flu shot, you get it. But we really want our residents to understand why it's beneficial, um, why it would be helpful, especially in a congregate setting like nursing homes, where sometimes one person gets the flu and it starts to spread just like COVID. So this is just one that the three buildings in Alameda are working on closely. Next. Um, so again, uh, the post-acute does their own regulatory as we, we have subject matter expertise in regulatory and operations, we're licensed. We had uh, CD, uh, CDPH, we do a lot of self-reporting. Um, CDPH is in a lot of our buildings very frequently, um, but we have about a 92% no findings negative rate, meaning when they come out, they don't find any issue. Uh, we just had a visit uh, to Fairmont in December. They uh, came out on two complaints. A surveyor left and there were no findings, uh, which was great. I will share that all of our buildings in December um, had in late November and December were in COVID outbreak of some sort. Currently, Fairmont is the only building that still is in COVID outbreak status. Um, so all the testing continues and reporting to CDPH and, and public health as is required. Next slide, please. I did include this last month, but as you can see, it's from November 20th, and, and we had anticipated that we would get the three-year accreditation, but uh, our acute rehab unit at San Leandro, um, and I think this was shared uh, in, I think it was the board meeting um, when Dr. Winkle spoke, um, who he was highly um, complimented during the survey as being in the top 1% of physicians in terms of documentation and outcomes. Um, but really, this is the gold standard for acute rehab facilities. They have been accredited for three years for rehab services and stroke programs. Um, we are working on becoming accredited um, in spinal cord injury, but that'll be in our next round with CARF. Um, and so for San Leandro, this is, um, like I said, the gold standard. Um, I will share, you know, I think we know this, that the three Alameda sites were um, nationally recognized as being top in the country. You know, there are over 16,000 nursing homes that were compared against with federal and uh, over 1,200 um, in the state of California. And so I point that out just for a public institution or for a, you know, self-authority uh, facilities that it's great to be able to compete with those for-profit organizations um, and really demonstrate that quality of care uh, and outcomes isn't based on what a building looks like, but in the compassion and dedication that the staff have. And so just really proud of the work that our teams do. And I think this last slide is just if there are any Q&As and I try to keep it brief. So hope that helped. Thank you, Mr. Espinosa. Trustees? Go uh, and have fun. I <laughs> 
I, I, I wouldn't. Uh, may I call you Richard, Mr. Espinosa? Uh, I don't know what the protocol is here. I, I want to. It was you a wonderful call me Richard. <laughs> Richard, I, I had a really wonderful call with you the other day. I want to thank you for that, and I want to compliment you and your team. You've been with the agency how long? I'm going on 12 years um, with an with an eight week week hiatus in there, but came back. So yeah. well, uh, clearly <laughs> so the agency uh, benefits from you. Coming back, I, I started my healthcare experience in program of all-inclusive care for the elderly. Um, we had seven, eight percent of our members in SNFs, um, and to maintain the quality that your SNFs are exhibiting um, is incredible. And I just want to compliment you in front of your your leadership. Um, amazing, amazing work, and um, I'll leave it at that. I appreciate that, and and our teams. Um... Yeah, they work really hard and they, they collaborate incredibly well. Um, we were rounding today at Fairmont and between dietary, EBS and engineering and nursing, they all work um, in sync uh, and that's what makes it work. So thank you. Uh, teams are a reflection of their leadership, sir. So <laughs> compliments to you. Agreed. Sure. Uh, uh, Mr. Espinosa, just as a closeout, because this is a nice entree into our, our, our next section, can you remind the audience how many of these post-acute beds exist in our system as part of our continuum? Yeah, we have 318 mm -hmm. beds, which is about half the beds of the organization. So yep. a pretty big footprint. And today we are at 300 um, patients. So, we so have your about occupancy is, is usually greater than 95%, question mark? We're at 94% today. Mm -hmm. But I also understood, uh, Mr. Espinosa, I also understood that the way the reporting structure works is different at the SNFs, where a lot of departments report to you up through the chain versus to Mark or um, Mr. Fratsky or other members. Was that part of the conversation you and I had? Yes. So uh, regulatory um, reports directly to me, and, and that's largely because we have the subject matter expertise. And also there are regulations around, you know, in an abuse um, allegation, you have to report that within two hours. And that could be Saturday morning at one in the morning. And our administrators have personal licenses that um, are accountable for that. So they would have to report that to the state. Um, we also, the nursing rolls up to my uh, uh, quality executive nursing officer for post-acute. And so the nursing rolls up to them. So we do all of the education, all of the nursing, staffing, education, um, quality, uh, regulatory reporting, um, survey management, um, all of that comes through our department. So, and and that's, a, that's a team of me and Marianne <laughs> and our administrators. So it's a small but mighty team. Thank you. Mr. Espinosa, thank you so much. Uh, with that, we'll close out item D2 and we'll go into our, our last uh, big session item for the evening. This is item E. Uh, it's our presentation. I'll give a little bit of a brief introduction. The, the, the presentation is entitled Hospital Throughput, Patient Flow in Unscheduled Care. Now, as a standard, we usually give 15 minutes for each presentation, but this was, is a particularly large one. So we're nearly doubling that time for this one as we go out. So we're going to allocate 25 minutes. Madam Clark, that'll get us to 630, and if we can move um, through that. So uh, we're gonna, uh, I'm, I'm going to introduce Dr. Andrea Wu who's our Associate Chief Medical Officer for Acute Care based uh, here at, at, at Highland. She's an emergency department physician. And of course, there's uh, uh, 
Dr. Roe Lofton, who's our system chief nursing officer, and she holds a dual title of our chief administrative officer for Highlands. So that they're sort of a dyadic partnership on, on, on this issue. Um, so with that, um, let's start off with what we've been doing and see if this helps. Let's look at this executive summary and do a little bit of reading. And hopefully this will help uh, the doctors uh, in their presentation. Um, uh, and and uh, if, if it's already been written, we're, gonna, we're all reading it together. So uh, Madam Clerk, if you'll give like a minute and then just scroll down. I, I found this to be a particularly well-written uh, executive summary. It gives, it's written in prose, it gives good context. So I'll let everyone kind of read if they don't mind. Ronna, do you mind scrolling to the bottom paragraph? Yeah, keep going up, keep going up, and hold it right, and slide it just a little bit. There, right there. Um, all right, crew. Uh, good evening, Doctors Wu and Doctors Lofton. Thank you for coming to us, and we can give them. Uh, we can let them go into their slide set. Uh, uh, our target is to get out by uh, six. Uh, get out of this by six thirty. So I robbed you of a little bit of time, but hopefully that read through helps us a little bit. And uh, time for discussion. So the floor is yours. Great. Thank you. Um, and Ro, feel free to chime in as we go through this. So. Um, thank you for reading the executive summary. I think the background, I really tried to summarize kind of the landscape of where we are now. Um, and I think, you know, in, in relation to the many comments from the presentations before, I do believe AHS is at a tipping point. Um, I think that we have begun to design an infrastructure for sustainable quality care in an impactful, positive direction. Um, but I think that right now we are in a setting of growing pains to get there. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of things that we're doing in this presentation that can outline sort of this mindset of becoming proactive in the way we approach throughput um, and really acknowledging how complex it is. It's multi-causal. It has a lot of patients um, that you know, end up having incomplete care that come into the emergency department. They come and they wait and then sometimes they leave because it just takes too long or they have other needs. Um, and for patients that do need to come into the hospital, they don't get the correct care they need in the right place at the right time, and things wait. Um, and in a, in a setting where you can't control cost because of EMTALA and federal regulations, we will always have open doors in the emergency department. And that will lead to, one, I think some patients' first experiences of AHS. And so really, we want to try to mitigate these types of healthcare um, problems that are national as best we can. And then, you know, throughout their course of care in Alameda Health System, right? The patient moves as a, a part of a spectrum of care through a healthcare team. 
And so every component of that healthcare team needs to be efficient. And that's really what the throughput steering committee is driving towards is this multidisciplinary approach with a layered mindset of changing things into a proactive way. So we've identified several initiatives that we wanted to highlight today. Thank you, Dr. Wu. So on the screen, you'll see our current throughput initiatives. And um, as you'll see in this, it's a collaborative effort because what we've learned is that we're better together. Um, we have 10 initiatives. Uh, two of those are on the watch list and one is in the parking lot. Um, and our presentation today will highlight each of these initiatives as far as the work that we're uh, working on and what we would like to achieve. Um, you'll, you'll hear from us about the ED front end uh, redesign, which is a joint effort between our nursing VP, Dusty Gilliland, and Dr. Justin Moore of the ED. Um, we'll be discussing our surge red response. Um, that is, you can see the operational owners there, uh, Dr. Dana Littlepage, Dusty as well, um, Dr. Wu, um, and Berlinia, our director in the SATC Center. Um, our case management redesign, which is extremely important, readmission reduction, our work with um, UM and CURE for observational services, very exciting work that you'll hear about, um, as well as our physician advising um, initiative and system bed capacity. So as Andrea mentioned, you know, we kind of came to a tipping point and uh, we needed to do something. And so that was the birth of this through um, our throughput steering committee. And uh, these are our initiatives. Next slide. So the first initiative we wanted to highlight was the front end ED redesign. And I do wanna give a shout out to Dr. Wills as well as she's been a big champion of this. And I wanna highlight here that this is, again, is really a, a change in the way we design the process of how a patient checks into the emergency department. So traditionally, a patient will check in and see a triage nurse if there is a wait. And of course at Highland, it's often hard to get to a bed. And so what we've done is added, added in a layer of safety and a and layer of efficiency by bringing the doctor to the patient, even if there is no staff. And so what we've done is incorporated a team triage model where the provider, and in this case, we've used attending physicians. So the most senior physician in the department paired with the triage nurse to identify, are you sick or not sick? And then if you aren't sick and you can wait for a bed, then let's start your workup. Let's start the tests that you need. And this is a model that's been implement, implemented in many other settings. And we really wanted to get AHS, especially Highland, up to date on how we can kind of be proactive and, and seeing those patients more upfront, even if we have limited capacity. And so once you start the workup, you have testing, you have phlebotomy needs, you have imaging needs. And so that's really where this interdisciplinary effort is happening, where we have techs, nurses, phlebotomy, all working together to get that patient moving and really expediting care in that way. This is significantly driven down discharge length of stay. So particular for those patients that can be safely discharged from the emergency department, you can see that their length of stay right when the pilot begins at the end of October, length of stay drops precipitously. So a total of 66.5 minutes just in the three weeks um, prior to implementation. And you can kind of see here, we started out in the pilot just having the provider and triage there during daytime hours. And so you can see that blue line dropping below our goal and underneath the historical uh, prior uh, discharge length of stay 
where you can see that immediate impact by having that physician up front. So not only is that physician helping to identify those sick patients and getting them to a bed quicker, they're starting their workups faster. And then they're also identifying the patients that don't need to stay in the emergency department that have something quick. And so they're really expediting fast track and making it even more efficient. And this happened despite the fact that lately, the volumes in the Highland Emergency Department have been higher than the years past. And this is a little bit different. I think what may, many national places have seen is that emergency department volumes are maybe just getting back to pre-COVID levels. At Highland, the volumes are actually a bit higher than historical. So despite having more patients checking in, you can see that the patients that left after triage, so left after seeing both the triage nurse and the provider, was much lower, right? And so our target initially was to get less than 3%. And within that pilot period, it was so successful, we got down to 2.5%. And because Dr. Wills and her department are so dedicated, we've decided to continue this um, and really start working on expanding this to after hours. Go ahead. So speaking of um, the ED, <laughs> surge red response. So uh, many of you, probably see the surge red alerts that come on the computer um, starting probably at about eight o'clock in the morning every day. And you know what does it mean? I know that it's an irritant for some, um, but there's actually a process behind it. Next slide. So the surge red process, uh, the criteria is if we have at least 15 uh, ED admit boarders that are holding and waiting for beds. And um, this is a, uh, interdisciplinary process as well, because we have our physicians, case managers, the nurse managers, charge nurses, health supervisors, as well as, well as bed control that really come together to do an assessment of what the state of the house. So um, we're looking at which patients we can move out. What's the plan? Who's gonna be discharged? Do we have any transfers? What's waiting to come in? We're, we're looking at ways that we can be able to decompress the emergency department and actually get those patients um, into beds. And this really speaks to the article that um, was attached for us to review for this meeting as well, where we know that if patients are in the emergency department for long lengths of time, that um, that really compromises their care. So this process is a way for us to try and look at the state of the house and see how can we actually mobilize those patients and get them up into a bed. This um, occurs at least twice a day. Um, and as you can see here, this is just the uh, tracking sheet that we're using to compile the data. Um, and the activated hours are there, um, 10.30 and 2.30. Um, there's actually another meeting that occurs later in the day at about four o'clock uh, that we're morphing to include uh, next day discharges to help with this process as well. So you can see the attendees that are there. And um, this has really proven to so far be pretty successful in us at least understanding the state of the house and coming together as a team to strategize on how we're gonna decompress the emergency. Yeah, and I wanna emphasize too that this is a system mindset that we're having. So no longer are the acute care hospitals sort of functioning in their own silo, that we're really looking at throughput across the system because AHS sometimes has luxury to have open beds at our community hospitals. So what we've really tried to do, and we'll talk about this in a, in a later initiative about really optimizing which patients can go where and utilizing some of those unused beds. 
So the next initiative is our case management redesign. Um, this is a big, a big initiative, and I'll just try and highlight a little of what's going on um, uh, with this initiative. So currently our state um, at AHS is that our case managers are responsible for the care coordination, discharge planning, and utilization review. Um, that poses some challenges. And so some of those challenges are meeting the utilization management and case management performance standards, regulatory um, compliance. We've had um, a high number of denials as well as some negative financial impact. So what we're wanting to do in a future state is to have a more collaborative model. And that, that model would have case management along with care without delay uh, personnel as well as UM. And so we're really looking at the job descriptions and looking at the roles to make sure that they're fitting um, with that particular discipline and that the actual um, duties are spelled out to where people know um, exactly what they need to be doing and um, how we can work together to effectively manage our patients. And so the care coordination department, um, they aim to ensure a smooth and effective discharge process um, as well as addressing the individual needs of patients and um, facilitating their uh, post-hospitalization care. So we talked a little bit um, earlier about UM and how the importance of having a UM department that understands our patient population, understands um, our patients' um, insurance and what they would qualify for. How do we get those reimbursements? Um, this is very important and it's a lot of work to kind of pull this all together. Um, we are also looking at our observation services and how do we, how do we work together? <laughs> Can you go back one slide, please? Sure. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> so managing our observation services, looking at length of stay and um, efficiently contain our costs while we're maintaining the quality of care. Next slide. So some of the objectives of the restructuring of case management and utilization management, of course, is to, in, to enhance um, the case management and the utilization review performance. So it's real important for us to be able to improve our, our performance as well as meet or exceed the industry standards. We want to be aligned with the regulatory requirements and ensuring that we're adhering to Title 22, to COPS, any legal requirements and mitigating any compliance risk. Also to be financially um, responsible and to, to sustain by um, mitigating those impl implications by optimizing case management and the utilization review functions. So we want to make sure that we are, um, that the teams are fun functioning to the full capacity so that we reduce denials um, and enhance our revenue capture. So we wanna eliminate errors. As well as our documentation, we need it to be comprehensive. And this was also mentioned earlier. We we're talking about um, reimbursements and ensuring that um, we are being able to maximize those and making sure that the care is individualized for our patients and our patient population. So this will help us to be able to address challenges in our um, documentation and ensure that it's complete and that it's accurate and that most importantly, it's compliant with regulatory standards. So just a few updates with our journey to um, restructuring case management and the UM departments. Uh, we have been working with the union to design and um, bargain those workflows. 
looking at different care assignments, ensuring that we have the right ratios for people, that the workload isn't too heavy, um, as well as looking at professional development and competencies for them. Um, we have looked at the job descriptions and um, made some key updates and changes to those as well. Uh, we were fortunate enough to be able to onboard a project manager to kind of assist with this project. Um, working on logistics, we're wanting to bring the team together um, on site so that they can work together, support one another, as well as be able to have um, people to cover when you have absences or PTO. Um, we're also looking to organize and create uh, uh, an environment that's, that works for this particular group and technology that supports our needs. So making sure that we have the right reports and um, the right uh, templates for us to be able to gather data and be able to um, measure those against our goals. Um, the last thing I'll say about this is that um, we are doing all of this work in a phased approach. Um, and right now we are only in phase one of this um, initiative. So there's more to come as we return and report out. So this brings us to our next initiative, which is- Dr. Wu, I'll, I'll note that we're at about a five minute time check because we want to give the trustees time for Q&A. Absolutely. So I just want to highlight quickly that we did also implement observation services. So this is really for that category of patients where they're too sick to be discharged in the emergency department, but they don't necessarily meet inpatient medical necessity. And so for this middle range of patients, they need a little bit more time, which is considered to be less than two midnights, to have a little bit more care to declare themselves as safety discharge or needing full inpatient admission. And we did uh, interdisciplinary training with case management, UM, and physicians to really get this on the ground. Uh, we've been um, starting to collect some data, which has been a work in progress, and really trying to get this through um, so that we can monitor the progress of the project. And this will have some financial implications for us as well by reducing uh, avoidable days and increasing reimbursement. Um, I'll just go next to readmissions. So we have a subcommittee of the UM work group um, with a large, dri largely driven by case management and really trying to bring down our 30-day readmissions um, and trying to identify strategies in which we could do this in a patient-centered approach. Um, as you know, we have complex patients that are often underinsured, making it difficult for them to get outpatient resources that they need or safe disposition plans. And so really having case management for these complex dispositions be embedded in the process with care transitions teams to ambulatory care are really key pieces of this. The other thing that we wanted to highlight is really just, again, moving towards system bed capacity. So the idea that we are lucky, actually, to have some extra capacity within our system is just moving the patients to the right place at the right time. And we found that having a hospitalist during this pilot of Doc of the Day, somebody who didn't have patients in front of him or her that needed to be cared for, but could really have eyes on the system to figure out where patients could go for bed assignment that would optimize throughput throughout the system. And this was, again, an interdisciplinary effort. You'll see that as a recurring theme for us, where it was transfer center staff, bed control staff, you know, um, hospitalists, emergency medicine doctors, all of us working together to identify these patients and move them to the safest place. 
So the more complex patients that needed more specialty care, we tried to keep those here at Highland. For patients who were more simple, who um, may have preferred to be in a community setting because Highland has its own challenges with parking, et cetera, we would try to get those patients to either Alameda or San Leandro. That dock of the day was really the air traffic controller for moving this with partnership with transfer center staff. And you can see here that we reduced volumes of boarding. We increased decompression transfers. We decreased ICU length of stay. And ultimately, multiple types of staff reported great feedback with this. And so we went to the Budget Oversight Committee and got three additional hospitalist items. And so with that, you can kind of see that every front door that our patient touches, whether it's the ED coming into triage or it's getting admitted up into the inpatient tower, that we have approached this in a way where we have layered in some safety and some additional eyes on getting the patient to the right place at the right time. With this, we found that we had trouble identifying where the open beds were, where the beds were staffed and unstaffed. And so we developed a capacity management dashboard to really optimize EPIC to give us that visibility and transparency across the system. This work group continues as well, so we can optimize EPIC in the way that we can push throughput throughout the system. So um, in closing, we do want to show you a sample of our um, dashboard that we're creating. However, if you can go back one, one more slide back, sorry. Of course. <laughs> the leads of uh, these particular initiatives are noted here, but there's a few people that are key to this work that aren't listed on, on this um, slide. And that's Dr. Besh, um, Dr. Tornabene, um, Dr. Um, Dr. Bailey, Dr. Wills, Dr. Subramanian, uh, Victorino, Dr. Benson, um, and Perez, and um, as well as Janice Morelli um, from, from Quality. And I say all of that to say that this is a, a, a team sport. I mean, it, it's, it's literally taking all of us to be able to put our heads together, think about the metrics, think about the goals, think about how we want to accomplish these things. And um, I just didn't want to go without uh, mentioning the other team members. Um, next slide. Um, so this is a sample of our dashboard and we're really trying to um, mimic the True North dashboard so the things kind of look alike. And this may change um, because there's a group of us getting together to look at standardizing what our um, dashboards actually look like. But this is just to give you a sample that we will be looking at the baseline, uh, what our goals are um, and um, where we are for fiscal as well as a trend line and we'll be able to put in our action plan items. So this is still under construction, um, but uh, we are really, really excited about this work and feel like it's gonna drive our organization in the way that we want to go and ultimately um, achieve that world-class status as a safety net um, organization. So really looking forward to reporting out to you all um, in the future on our progress, but please rest assured and know that there's a lot of work going into this um, to improve throughput across the system. This is just a quick high-level summary, kind of touching on the initiatives that we mentioned. Um, happy to go into detail and answer any questions, but I think the, the key message is there's a lot of work happening to get us steering in the right direction to proactively move away from the storm. So we are definitely doing our best here. Thank you very much for that presentation. Pretty comprehensive. Trustees? Well, uh, if I may, um, 
it's hard to understand how everyone can be so involved in these efforts and still do their day job. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of impressed by the complexity of this committee structure. And I applaud you for all of you for managing that because I know how difficult that can be. And then I had a very simple question that's a lay person's question. Going back to earlier in the presentation, when you talked about having a physician as part of the triage, which I thought was a really great idea. One of the things I wondered about is lay people think that lots of people go to the uh, emergency department of a hospital that don't need to be there. What do you do with those people? The sore um, throats, the flu. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, that's a great question. So um, as an ED doc, I work in our Highland ED, and I can definitely say that that experience is there. There are definitely patients who, traditionally speaking, shouldn't be in an emergency department. But I think the key answer is where else would they go? And then that is the linchpin, I think, what causes our patients to come to the Highland ED, where ultimately the ED acts as an access point for primary care for specialty care, for I have nowhere else to go because nothing else is open care. And so I think ultimately, if we work together to increase that access, whether it's through telehealth, because I do think, I love that telehealth is expanding <clears throat> ambulatory care, but I do think there's a role for it potentially in acute care as well. Dr. Joshi? Yeah, I would like to also add that often I'll have patients say, I'm so sorry to have yes. taken your time. Um, I, I realize how busy you are, you know, explanations for why they feel they shouldn't be in the ED. And the one thing I always tell them, it is not their job as a patient to know when they are experiencing an emergency. That's my job. They just have to have symptoms and concern. And to Dr. Wu's point, if they have no other place to be, that is why we are there. I feel like, you know, it's a slippery slope and potentially dangerous to start to put that on patients. And that's why, you know, we are there and important to educate that. Thanks, Dr. Joshi. Yes, sir. I don't want to belabor that point, but I come from a health insurance background, you know, and in the insurance industry, you disincentivize people from using emergency facilities because you don't want them to go out of network and run up a big bill. You do it by having this financial penalty for it. We've got people that don't feel a financial penalty, and I guess that's an additional challenge for us. And it seems to me the logical, or what I, I guess I wondered about, what a, what a sort of unaffiliated person that's not uh, somebody that we see regularly uh, that thinks they're experiencing an emergency, they may not be, uh, they're, and they're not a member of a sort of regular health plan where they can call an advice nurse or something. Do we offer something like, maybe we do, we offer something like that to help people determine if they're experiencing an emergency situation? So, oh, go ahead, Roy, I see that you're... I was just going to say, we do have a call center, um, but we do not have, and Dr. Will, you can speak more to this, <clears throat> we do not have a... Um, like an advice nurse that says, you know, yes, you should come to the emergency department right now, um, unless they've called into maybe the call center and um, kind of discussed some of the symptoms that they were having, but we don't have that other setup that I think you're referring to. I would also add, I'm sorry, that often I'll ask patients, I, I very often ask patients, did you try going to your primary care doctor? Did you try doing X, Y, and Z? And the response I will get, not all the time, but fairly often enough, is that I tried calling my doctor. The next appointment was in three months. I tried doing XYZ, and the closest they could tell me was something that's just too far. And then again, I reiterate that um, this is truly why we are here. It's not perfect, but it is a place that we have in society. Um, 
and in a role that we do take very seriously. Well, it goes to our earlier conversation. We need to be more robust about having outpatient, you know, ambulatory surgery available or ambulatory care available. Dr. Subramanian. Yeah, I think that's exactly what I was going to say. This really speaks to access to primary care, same day clinic services, for example, urgent care clinic services. And that comes back to our dilemma of space, resources, and staff. We're doing our best to extend hours and weekends and evenings and provide more of these services. Um, but there are this, the limitations we discussed. Dr. Wu? Yeah, I've been in this organization maybe almost six months, and there's a, an a insane amount of work happening at an incredible pace, I have to say. Um, and that's due to really the sheer will of just the number of people who are so dedicated to making this better. Um, you know, I, I do think that even when you layer in this fix of improving access to primary care, there will always be this demand for unscheduled care because exactly to the point of the culture of the Amazonness that we live in, right? Like this immediacy that I want the answer right now. That immediacy at this current state for many healthcare systems is the ED. It's maybe an urgent care and it's maybe telehealth, right? And so I think if we can build on those demands by siphoning off those less acute patients into something like that, it would be a way for us to really have the emergency department focus on the sickest of the sick. And then we can continue to try to fix that backdoor of getting patients upstairs so that once we've decided they're sick, that they get the care that they need instead of kind of waiting downstairs in the emergency department. Can I just add in to, to back up what Dr. Joshi was saying? It's not patients' jobs to actually figure out when they're having an emergency. I have taken care of ear pain that turned out to be an aortic dissection, dental pain that was acute renal failure, needing emergent dialysis, um, rash, triage, level five, so our lowest acuity that was meningococcemia, so bacterial meningitis. Um, among many, many others, I have activated the cath lab from our fast track. I've sent people to the OR from the lobby. So I cannot underscore, um, you know, we used to call ourselves a safety net organization. We really, really are. We see just such incredibly advanced disease that is the product of people that do not have access to regular uh, maintenance care. And that is the reason that many of us choose to practice here. So. There are things that surely we could be siphoning off to primary care and prevent those visits. There are other things where we are glad to be there uh, to rescue patients with very serious disease. Uh, my question is to both Drs. Wu and Dr. Lofton. I mean, when you look at this, uh, this I'll call it a battle plan, it looks like D-Day for schedule Normandy or something like that. Uh, so my question is, uh, do you feel resourced to, to sustain this endeavor? And, and, and that's, again, I keep saying that that's a, a veiled question. What do you need to sustain this change? I mean, Eisenhower couldn't have done this for another couple of years, right? He, you know, he had to set up for June 5, June 6, right, to do it like this way. So how do you guys sustain this? Because it looks like a, almost an overwhelming battle plan. It may look like an overwhelming battle plan, but if you look at it, it's, it's really kind of compartmentalized. We have... We have foot soldiers. We have people that are at, out there um, doing this work, bringing the information back to the group. We brainstorm about it and they go back out. And there's additional people that are in the work groups as well. Um, I do think that 
for me, it's a sense of urgency. Like these are things that we have to do for our patients. Um, when I think about what we need, um, we can always use, you know, a little more IS support with report running so that we can get our data um, timely and um, get some of our systems to really work for us so that we're not working so hard to try and gather the data. Um, Andrea, anything to add to that as well? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that right now it's all about prioritizing the biggest impacts and then setting us up for the long game. And so, so much of what we're doing, and part of the reason why I think you're not seeing big shifts yet, is that we're building and we're designing and we're creating the infrastructure to continue this and full throttle have the resources to be able to do this on a day-to-day -day basis. And so what AHS is doing right now is really building those like foundational components to a lot of this work. And I think we're gonna be doing really amazing things. We will be world-class. I am very hopeful and that's the reason I came here. Um, and I do think that um, the, the group of people that are doing this, it's a very limited few doing the 11 initiatives with us, yet we are still seeing forward movement, but even, even though we have all these other demands, I think people are just really dedicated to the process. Thank you for that. And this, I guess my question goes to, and I hear the building the foundations, but this goes to Trustee Garrett's point. Many of these people have day jobs. So are we just, uh, is our foundation built upon someone who had limited resources to give? And are they, where along the line do they flame out if we don't sustain them? So I guess that that's my question. Are, are you confident that the foundations being built aren't just built on people's extra time? I'm, I'm pretty confident that the foundation is being built and it's not on extra time um, because this is our work and th this this is what we do. Um, so when we're thinking about like the ED redesign, you know, that's stuff that we, we need to do. And besides just the flow and the pit dock, you know, we're also looking at the physical layout. Um, so there's people that are helping us with that. I think that foundation that we're building is is built and, and it will be strong. It'll be able to sustain this. And I think we have a committed group of people that are working together. Um, you mentioned about rowing in the same direction. These, um, these people are rowing in the same direction. I think we have a shared understanding. Um, will it get tough at times? I do think so. Yes, um, but these are our priorities. They are our organization's priorities. They are in alignment with our strategic plan. So this is the work that we should be doing. Yes, of yeah. course. Docs, I'll, I'll open it up to you for any com contributing comments as we come to a close. Do you feel resourced to do this work? I mean, short of building us two new inpatient floors and an observation unit and all the <laughs> staff and everything that goes with it, yeah, uh, these are the structural things. Uh, in, in this system's <laughs> wisdom, we built a smaller hospital than we had before. None of us were here to make that decision before, but we built a, it's a structural issue. We built a smaller hospital than we had previously. Right. I, I mean, to answer your question, I think this is very methodical work. Um, and so at, at this point, we don't have an ask. We are going to continue to kind of push forward and, and work with our resources that we have. I do think there may come a time where we have increased needs as we identify the additional layers of the foundation that we're going to need in the future to really maximize our, our capacity as a system. Um, but at this point, we got three items for the ED physicians to expand the provider and triage. 
We have two hospitals items coming for Doc of the Day to build that air traffic controller system mindset of throughput. So we are actively moving in those directions to build those pieces into our day-to-day. -day. And I think embedding that proactive mindset, we'll start to see a bend of the curve. Um, and I think there's going to be more needs, but you know, this is where we're starting. And so I don't, I don't want to ask for anything just yet. Got it. I, I, I want a good faith. We gave opportunity, <clears throat> Dr. Subramanian, and then maybe we'll close. Yeah, I think, um, I, I think this has been an excellent discussion. I just want to just emphasize, we've talked a lot about uh, the triage function and what happens in the ED. I just want to emphasize the back end again, because I think this is what we see on the inpatient side as a big barrier, is how do we get our patients safely discharged? How do we coordinate their care from day one, from the time that they are admitted as an inpatient, whether they remain in the ED or whether they go upstairs to a bed, what is the care coordination and discharge plan? I just want to like put that out there. And I know people are working on that and revamping case management, but that, that is, I think, something I'm very much looking forward to. Thank you very much for those comments. Looking around, any other comments from anyone else in the room? Sir, I did have one brief thing that struck me as, um, you know, in my background in the government, if we undertook something like this, we would get a contractor or a consultant to come in and figure out what to do, and then we would get all these binders of stuff and no one would ever do it. And I really give you all credit for doing it yourselves so that the people that own it, yeah, the, the owner, the people that are gonna actually do the things and it has a much more greater potential of uh, success because those consultants usually come in and just tell you what you already knew, you know, before. So it's exciting. Sure, we could. Sir. Uh, to to uh, uh, Trustee Sain's point, the concern with that though is the list of providers that you mentioned, doctor, 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 Tornabene, the pressure that the providers must feel between you, you're, I'm amazed at how fluidly you all talk about revenue. To hear providers talk about revenue and revenue enhancement, I, I, I'm, I'm amazed and, 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 light and, and gratified to hear that. Um, but let's talk about that burnout versus provider productivity. This is, and then you layer on top of this, these projects. You're asking a lot of your providers, how are they responding? We are asking a lot of our providers. What I would say is that we are, we also ask a lot of our physician leaders that, that, that we have a large panel of um, physician leaders across the organization that are incredibly dedicated. So they all do clinical work. And then on top of that, they all lead these initiatives uh, across the organization and engage in quality and engage in patient safety. And these are helping, these are initiatives that are helping to drive the quality of care forward. Um, but it is a large demand. Yeah, and I, I, last comment, I wanna reflect back on the first presentation where we talked about how many board chairs have left. And the response to that was, they're leaving department because- chair. Department chairs, my apologies. Uh, department chairs, and they're leaving because of burnout. So I want to draw a correlation between the conversation here and that conversation earlier and, and just my concern for the human beings that are in those roles and, and what's being asked of them. Thank you, Trustee. With that, we'll close out item E, and I blew my timing, but it's okay. We'll go to item F, which is the planning calendar and issue tracking. The, uh, this is just a one minute. Uh, I'm working with Dr. Tornabeni. We're gonna actually have a forecast 
for the whole year about which true north metric items we're, we're, we're discussing. As this is a big issue, uh, and which what does this where does this throughput discussion affect one of our true north north uh, metric items? It's ED uh, ED uh, to bedtime, so that it does actually touch onto one of our true north metric items. Probably relates to readmissions also as well. But uh, with that, so with that, we will close the open session. That's item F, Councillor. Thank you, Chairman Kent. The board will now go, the Quality Committee of the board will now go to closed session to consider the items as stated on the agenda. Thank you, everyone. Uh, we're, we're expecting closed session to be hopefully less than 10 minutes. Um, it's okay if you're not here when we come out. Everyone have a great evening. <laughs> Hello, everyone. We've uh, just returned uh, from closed session. Councillor. Thank you, Chair Bouquet. The Quality Committee of the board met in closed session and approved the medical staff report. There were no other reportable actions taken. Thank you. With that, we'll close the January 24th, 2024 Quality Committee of the Board. Everyone have a great evening.